Viktor Frankl said, Everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of the human freedoms. To choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's way. This is Finding Human with Sue Jackson. Stay tuned for the next hour as Sue explores the human psyche, what makes us tick and how to live better, more fulfilled and more meaningful lives. Only on 101.9 High FM. Hello, this is Sue Jackson on the Finding Human program. My guest today is Harris Svee Green. I'm going to be introducing him shortly, but I would like to dedicate this program, first of all, to Bradley Waxman, who passed away unexpectedly on the 15th of February. Beloved husband, father, son, brother, brother-in-law, uncle, nephew, cousin and friend. To the Waxman, Koffler and Platsky families, I'd like to share a tribute written by Paul Koffler, Brad's cousin. And in this time of great pain, sometimes happy memories can be a source of comfort. As youngsters, Jonty and, and um, Brad, uh, uh, Jonty, Brad's younger brother, and Paul, his cousin, thought Brad was the coolest dude imaginable and followed him everywhere. So this tribute by Paul is an ode to Brad. This is what he said. In the shadow of Brad we roamed, his every step our hearts enthroned. With mischief twinkling in his eye, he led us where the wild winds fly. Through halls and gardens, streets and homes, we trailed behind our spirits shone. In karate's dance we found our groove. Under his wing we learnt to move. As years unfurled he soared above. In rings of triumph he found his love. Yet still he shared his wisdom wide. In tales of faith we found our guide. A beacon bright in paths unknown, a guardian strong, our hearts his own. In business realms he stood his ground, ensuring we were insured, trust abound. Though shadows fade, his light remains, a legacy of love sustains. In every stride, in every quest, we carry forth his spirit blessed. May Brad Sidishoma know eternal peace. And may he continue to shine his light on all his loved ones and please, Brad, on Israel too. Thank you so much, uh, um, Harris, for being so patient there. Um, Brad was a special, a special part of my son-in-law's family. Um, I would like to just tell you a bit about Harris, uh, Speed Green, first of all. He was with me on the 6th of February. And we got a lot of really good uh, feedback. So if you'd like to hear that podcast, please look it up. But you can look it up on, under the High FM Finding Human podcast, or you can go into Sue Jackson, High FM, and YouTubes. Now, Harris was born in Cape Town, South Africa. He made Alia 53 years ago. He's an accountant by profession. He served at the chief, as a, the chief financial officer for a number of Israel-based high-tech companies. He's married to Phyllis. They have three children, 13 grandchildren, and three great-grandchildren. Harris V. Green is a founder member of Truth Be Told, an organization engaged in public diplomacy on behalf of Israel. Now, Harris writes the blog for the, the Times of Israel, and uh, 
you need to actually go on to it to see his blog. I've been following it for so long, and every single week you give me something to actually ponder over. How are you today, Harris? I'm very well, thank you, and it's uh, good morning, and it's, it's nice to be, and thank you for your kind words of introduction. Uh, you sent me a photo of your beautiful new great-grandchild. Tell, mm-hmm. tell me about that baby. Well, uh, his name is Achia, right. and he was, born, uh, he was born two and a half months ago. Uh, he was born to my eldest grandson, uh, and my eldest grandson was actually in the army at the time of the birth, so he had to get, he had to get specially released in order to get back to the hospital so he could be next to his wife. Did and, he make uh, it in time? He made it in time, okay. yes, yes. <clears throat> and uh, we, got there that, we got there the following day. And uh, but one of the, the reason why I actually wanted to send you the photograph is that I wanted to, to show you and, and through you to, um, to enable the listeners to, to see exactly um, what our lives here in Israel are all about. We're not, we're, not, we're not professional soldiers or anything like that. We're here to live normal lives. We're here to, to study, to build careers, and to, and to try and make the world a better place. Isn't that beautiful? I loved what you actually said about that photograph. You said our soldiers have more meaningful things to do than to fight wars, to randomly kill people who don't represent an existential threat. And I thought it was beautiful that you said that, that they've got so much more meaningful things to do. And then you sent me another photo, which I loved as well. And that was a photo of another, um, hang on a sec, let me just get this. Um, You said it's your other grandson, Omer, releasing a dove in Gaza. And you said it says so much about the IDF and the moral fiber of the IDF. And I must admit, Harris, it's the most beautiful photo. I printed it out. And there your grandson is with this dove that he was releasing. It's a, a very beautiful, it's peace with guns and everything that he's are strapped to him. And here is this dove of peace. Uh, what did it mean to you when you first received this photo? Well, I, I must admit that when I saw this photograph, I thought this was something... This was a really unique uh, photograph. It was taken by somebody in my in my grandson's uh, crew, his uh, armored carrier crew, and uh, he took the photograph. You know, just sort of in a moment of, of quiet when they they had some time to themselves, and it just you know it seemed to me the, the whole picture and the background, the whole thing seemed completely surreal. It really does look surreal. I mean, it's obviously in Gaza, and it's, it's, it's really very thought-provoking. Um, now, Harris, I have read your father's diary, that a soldier's diary, that you, you actually put it together, um, and there was so much in it. It was your dad's journey uh, from the time he went in until he was injured in the Second World War. And I found it incredibly interesting. There were so many fascinating bits to it um, that, that resonate with us today still. But one of the things I must admit that you did say, and I second, is that the soldiers, the air, air crewmen, whoever was in the Second World War fighting for us, 
did so so that we could know peace. They did say, I know you said your father said that was the end of wars. My father Mm -hmm. said something similar. Um, And yet, I must admit, we have gone on to fight wars ever since, haven't we, especially in Israel? Absolutely. Now, when you first read your dad's diary, what did it mean to you? You yourself were in the IDF when you first got to Israel. So how many years training did you do? I did, uh, first of all, um, at the, when, I, when I was growing up in South Africa, I, um, there was compulsory military training. Um, it was my turn to do, uh, I should have done my military training in 64, but I wasn't balloted and, uh, because they, they had too many people. Okay. And, uh, and as a result, I never did army training then. I made Aliyah uh, a few years later in 1970, and uh, in 1974, immediately after the Yom Kippur War, at um, age 28, uh, and as the father of two children, that's when I went into what was called uh, a Shlavbet, which is a sort of a, the, the lower range of of, um, of military training. Mm-hmm. I spent around four months wow. doing basic training. And then afterwards, I served in the reserves until I was uh, 51. Wow. We're going to get back to the rest of that in a moment. Thank you, Craig. This is Finding Human with Sue Jackson, only on 101.9 High FM. Hello, this is Sue Jackson on 101.9 High FM on the Finding Human program. And my guest today is Harris V. Green. And I was asking him about when he went into the army, the IDF. I know, um, Harris, that you you said, I mean, you had already had two children. And then you were in the reserves for a long time. Was it when you were in the reserves that you were in the Second Lebanon War? In the first Lebanon War, the first. in 1982, that was the you know that was sort of the official uh, that was the official uh, uh, the only real uh, military operation at the time that was considered a war. Mm, mm. And um, I, I served there in I was uh, drafted on the day that the hostilities broke out on June 6, 1982. I spent around a month or so in the army, and then I came out, and then I went back in again. And uh, at, at that time, we did a lot of reserve duty. Oh, uh, did you? And we're back to doing a lot of reserve duty now with your your children, your sons, your your uh, granddaughters, grandsons. They're doing and a lot of tra- I mean, military service at the moment, aren't they? Yes, they are. At the moment, fortunately, everybody's at home. So uh, you can relax for a moment, breathe deeply. Yeah. You know, you said to me that for 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 well, you said in your book, your dad's the soldier's diary, uh, that writing a book around your father, your father's handwritten war diary, has been an inspirational and emotional experience. And you said it opened your eyes and filled. It, at times, they were filled with tears that you were aware of the realities of war and the dangers these heroes voluntarily exposed themselves to. And that was something that I found fascinating in your dad's story, that there were days when he was bored and there were other days when they were laying mines and in very dangerous situations. 
But somehow the camaraderie came through on every single day of your dad's diary. In the evening, they would play a bit of cards. You know, you can imagine that that camaraderie. Did you know any of your father's um, fellow army colleagues or friends? Yes, yes, I did. Um, I actually got got to meet quite a few of them. Um, I remember in the old days we used to go. Uh, we used to go and watch the uh, the soccer at yeah. uh, at Hartleyvale in Cape Town, and there was always one of the guys that was with my dad in the army that unfortunately suffered from shell shock, oh. and uh, he, he he took to the bottle, and uh, it, it was it was actually it was a very sad case. And whenever my dad used to see him there, he always used to take him for something warm to drink, and very often used to bring him home, and uh, he'd say he could get a you know he could get a good meal. And um, so I knew those people, and I knew other people as well um, that. Um, that that served together with him. Unfortunately, they're all gone now. Mm, mm. But uh, it, they were incredible, an incredible generation because they 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 came from very very poor backgrounds, and uh, basically because they they reached their their senior years in high school at the time of the Great Depression, many of them had to leave school and. Uh, you know, during the, the late 20s and the 30s, the times in, in all around the world actually weren't good. And so these people then, when the opportunity arose, they volunteered to serve in the army. And um, when I was reading the diary, I, it actually made me ask myself that how did these people know? Because there was so much uncertainty around them. They never knew how long they were going for. They never knew where they were going to. They never knew if it was going to be one month or three months or six months or a year or five years or whatever. They never knew that whether they'd ever see their families again. And, and you know, they went so far away from home. Mm. My dad was actually injured 11,000 kilometers from, from where we lived, mm. from, from South Africa. Mm. And uh, so that whole, that whole sort of, um, that whole dimension actually um, really, really struck a chord with me. And uh, I, um, it, it, reading the diary and going through the diary actually had, a, had an enormous impact on me. I'm quite sure it did because a lot of what you say, you said what thoughts passed through their minds when they hugged and said goodbye to their nearest and dearest. Where did their minds roam in those moments of solitude, lying in their dugouts or standing in the freezing cold, manning roadblocks and observation posts? And then you said so many died. Nobody ever called them dad. I thought that was so beautiful, what you said there, because they'd never experienced the joys of life, you said. The unshared dreams and ambitions simply dissipated. Um, and thousands more suffered and physical and mental injuries. Do you think that being brought up by a military man, I mean, I know your dad went into business, but at the time he was a military man when, uh, and spoke about it openly to you. Do you think it, it formed a bit of your own thoughts around war? Uh, yes, but um, you know, at the time when 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 my dad used to speak, when my dad and I used to speak about it, um, when I was still a, a much smaller child, 
to me, the whole thing was almost like an adventure. Mm. And in fact, I was quite envious of him that he'd gone through all this experience in life. And, uh, you know, and I hadn't gone through that, that experience in life. Um, but, you know, it's, it's only really when I got into reading the diary and seeing that it was day after day after day after day of the same, the same thing and the dangers and, uh, and things like that, it was, uh, you know, it, it had a huge, huge impact on me. Mm, I'm quite sure it did. And you say that Wikipedia describes World War II as the deadliest military conflict in history. Between 70 and 85 million people perished in the war. That's around 3% of the world's population in 1940. And, uh, I mean, that, that's huge. Um, and you, you, you also say that those heroes gave my generation a much better life than the ones they experienced. When you said that, it got me thinking about my own parents. My mother was in the, my mother lost her first husband. He was a South African pilot in the war and, and was shot down and killed. And my mother was a member of the South African uh, uh, women's part of the Air Force. She was an aerial photographer. And then, of course, my father was in the Royal Air Force in Britain. So I was also brought up around war. But the strange thing was, it was reading, you know, as you read the diary, you can see the pain that you, and the anguish. And, but I'm sure your dad didn't share that part with you. I know that when I started reading through my father's logbooks, I, I was more than shocked at what he actually had to experience. And, uh, but, and yet for them, it, it was, they were making it out to be like the halcyon days of their of their lives. Did you see that as well? Did you feel that? No, very much so. Very mm. much so, yes. You know, because the, the, the stories that my dad would tell us as, as kids about his experiences in the army, they all had humorous sides to them. Mm. Mm. And uh, the one thing actually that, that that struck me is that given what given what they went through at that time and the, uh, the way that they had to expose themselves to danger and the narrow squeaks they had periodically, almost on a daily basis, it amazed me that my dad never had any, it didn't seem to affect him mentally at all. He never, you know, he didn't suffer from any sort of uh, post-stress or the, uh, post post-trauma or anything like that. He was, uh, you know, he was, he was always, he was very calm, he was very collected and, um, you know, he only had good words to say to people. He was, Isn't that wonderful? He was really mm. Wonderful. And, you know, you say, and this actually goes for our IDF now as well. You said Lawrence Binion wrote, um, they shall grow not old as we that are left grow old. Age shall not weary them, nor the years condemn. At the going down of the sun and in the morning, we will remember them. Mm-hmm. That's, and I think... We'll leave that for now. People want to go on, find your diary, the, uh, A Soldier and His Diary by Harris Green. You can look it up and it will give you websites that you can go on to. You can listen. Uh, you can either listen to it or you can read it. Yeah, correct. Correct. And it's all, it's all free of charge. Yes, free of charge. Now, was your father, uh, did your father... 
enjoy seeing his own grandchildren going into the IDF. What did he think about you entering the IDF? Well, uh, first of all, unfortunately, my father passed away in 1982, so he never saw his grandchildren uh, in the army. But uh, he knew that he knew that I, you know, that I was obviously in the army. Uh, but uh, even before then, I remember on the day that the Six Day War in 1967 broke out, and uh, I was a university student at the time. I arrived at the campus that morning. Um, and uh, we heard that, you know, that that war had broken out in, in the Middle East and that Israel uh, was being attacked or had attacked. And, uh, and, uh, and uh, everybody started speaking about going to Israel to volunteer. And I decided that this was something that I had to do as well. So from the campus, I went straight home and I told my mom that that's what I decided to do. And my mother freaked out completely. <laughs> it wasn't, this, this wasn't for her. But uh, she called my dad and asked my dad to come home and to try and speak some sense into me. And as soon as he got home, the first thing he did, he walked inside and he gave me a huge hug and he said to me, son, I'm proud of you. Aww. And that, was, that, that to me was, was everything. Absolutely. And, um, but, I, you know, despite everything that, uh, or the few things that I went through, they were nothing compared to what, what he went through. Mm, mm. My so, husband... Very different. Very. My husband, Leon, actually also um, was in the Six-Day War. He volunteered from South Africa on the one of the first flights out, and they were escorted by fighter jets into, was it Lord Airport at the time, I think, Correct. wasn't it? Correct. Yeah. yeah. Um, now, Harris, just going back to your own children, when they were being brought up, what sort of childhood do you feel children in Israel do have? We discussed it last time, but a question came through. Why are Israeli children uh, so much more confident than other children? And, uh, and that came from a non-Jewish woman, and I thought it was rather a nice question to ask, actually. So I'm putting mm -hmm. that to you. I couldn't answer it. Um, I think actually that they're, expo they're exposed to lots and lots of news. Israel always seems to find a way of being in the, at the center of news. At least that's the way we perceive it over here. Mm. And uh, I think that, um, you know, while it may not necessarily immediately affect the younger generation, it certainly affects the, the older generation, like it affected my generation at the time. And I think that my children saw the fact that I was involved in it and that I went periodically to do reserve duty and uh, that there were lots of issues going on around us, whether, whether there was actual war, whether, whether there were terror incidents or whatever. And I think that it, it sort of it brought, it brings about a certain amount of, of, uh, of maturity in kids because you find all of a sudden that you're having to assume a lot of responsibility at a, at an unusually young age. Mm, mm. And I think that that's what did a lot, that's what did a lot for them. I know that uh, certainly as far as my son was concerned and all of that, you know, he found himself in a situation where he had to to display responsibility and make decisions and, and, and act on behalf of people around him. And I can see that my grandchildren, my grandchildren are having to do the same thing. Mm, mm. And, uh, 
you know, I, 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 I think that they very, that it sort of gets them to mature that much earlier. I, I agree with you. I think it definitely does make them mature a bit earlier. For a moment, you froze there. Um, you know, another question that came through was about your, your um, grandson-in-law who was injured. And you mentioned it last time, and the question came through. Could you please tell us how, uh, uh, was it Ariel? Ariel, yes. Yeah. How, how is he healing? Now he's doing he's doing well. He's uh, he needs to have uh, some very small surgery, minor surgery, to you know. But he'll be he'll be as good as new, and uh, he's he's pretty much there already. Okay, that's great to hear. How do you yourself calm yourself when you know that your children are in a dangerous situation? It's not easy. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, you, you sort of find yourself going from room to room in the house mm. and, and listening, to the, listening to too many talk shows on the, on the, on the, on the media, reading too many articles and sort of it, it, this whole atmosphere kind of sucks you into what's, what's happening. Mm. So very much part of it. You know, on the one hand, you want to be able to help and do whatever you can. On the other hand, you know, you also you need to find you need to keep abreast of the of the events as they're unfolding, and uh, it's uh, it's it's complicated. It's uh, you know the last the last four or five months since all this business started have been have been extremely difficult. It's uh, you know we've had our ups and downs in the family. We've had um, we've had our, our grandson getting married, and we had the arrival of a, a great grandchild. And uh, so these are all very special events. And somehow when you're celebrating these events, you ask yourself, you know, there's something, it, it occurs to you that what's happening around you isn't really, you know, not, not, that not everybody is living in the same, mm -hmm. in the same sense of, of, uh, of happiness and elation at that specific moment. The big issues at stake. But you almost have to celebrate those special occasions when you can and bring Absolutely. a bit of normality in. Another question that did come through was, do you discuss the war with your, your own contemporaries? Because obviously a lot of them also have children and grandchildren who are at present in the war. Absolutely. Certainly with our, you know, certainly with the neighbors and with our friends and, uh, and um, you know everything, all 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 social contact, even with people from abroad, it, everything is against this backdrop of the mm. of the war, and uh, you know so that's very much become the centre of our of our lives and what we focused on and everything. And a friend of mine was saying that a lot of it also is focused on the anger at South Africa, and what South Africa have been doing, uh, well the government have been doing with the genocide, uh, uh, putting genocide um, at the ICJ, saying that Israel was committing genocide. We're going to get back to that shortly. This is Finding Human with Sue Jackson, only on 101.9 High FM. Hello, this is Sue Jackson on the Finding Human program on 101.9 High FM. And my guest today is Harris Svee Green, 
And we are talking about his dad's experiences in the war, and we're talking about his experiences in Israel at the moment, and um, and his his own grandchildren and children. Our topic actually is we will prevail. We have no choice, and I think that is exactly what it is. There is no choice. And There's you know, no choice. No. Earlier you said that you don't know why Israel always, um, everyone seems to focus on Israel. I said this last week, I read a, a thing that said, no Jews, no news. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah, that's true. And, and that is uh, it's quite right, isn't it? You know, we never hear uh, good things coming out of, of um, any of the cha- TV channels, the news channels. And I don't know if it was even reported that there was a mass protest against Hamas in Gaza. Um, and n- nobody, I thought to myself, was it fake news? Because nobody was reporting it. Tell me about that, for, if you can. Well, the, the, what I know about it, I wasn't there. <laughs> right. uh, Thank goodness. <laughs> That's right. Uh, what I saw was that... Uh, it, it, was that there were the demonstrations in certain parts of the Gaza Strip against Hamas. I think that the, what's happening now is you see on the television, you see uh, trucks with humanitarian aid going into Gaza. Right. And you see the, these trucks are taken over by Hamas operatives. They are completely looted. And then everything is sold. This is humanitarian aid. And it's then sold back to the, to the, to the public. And I think that this is now this is now uh, is what's annoying the locals that you know the the, the, the less involved or the non-involved, and uh, that's really that's what's behind all of this because I think that you know it, it's easy to write everybody off and say nobody's interested in 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 peace and nobody wants nobody wants to live You've just, normal lives, mm, but at the end. You know, we've got our families, we've got we've got our futures. We want to do something with our lives, and and, and doing something with our lives isn't isn't necessarily you know just doing the things that Hamas did on October seventh. There's Absolutely. more to it, and I think that I think that a lot of that is now beginning to to sink into the local population, to the extent that it's happening sufficiently, and that the Hamas, Hamas will be completely overthrown. I, I think we're still quite a long way from that. Right, I think so too. But certainly, I think the um, as people and hopefully the UN looks into the UNRWA, um, who have been openly supporting Hamas, um, may perhaps the Palestine, the normal uh, citizens of Gaza will actually rise up and say, "It's enough. We want peace for our children." And wouldn't yes, that be yeah. wonderful? Yeah, it would. Uh, what, what I what what actually uh, intrigued me is I saw around the if I saw a few days ago an article on the on the internet that UNRWA has now been recommended or nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize. And I, I, I couldn't I believe it, it. I saw it, that too. It's, it's and often I, I look around me and I and I look at the media and I look at at, at everything going on around me and I think to myself. Do people really think that we are so stupid that they can actually carry on and try and bluff the world? Oh. That the events of October 7th were really, you know, and, and, and that actually what annoyed me about South Africa's stance and, and taking the, the charges to the ICJ. It's, 
it's absolutely ridiculous and unacceptable that any leader, any leader of state can actually accept and, 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 and go along with the behavior that Hamas displayed on October 7th. And, uh, and, and the UNRWA uh, people that were photographed who were in there, even, you know, uh, even journalists who were there, obviously yes. were part of the, that whole Hamas uh, massacre. It's just, it's incredibly upsetting. Now, I was also asked about the settlers, but just before getting to that, you know, um, I also read an article that said um, that during the last week, the precise and limited operation against the Hamas terrorist, terrorist organization at the NASA hospital was concluded. And it went on to say what Israel actually did then. The operational activity was conducted to ensure minimal disruption to the hospital's ongoing activities and without harming patients and medical staff. Furthermore, the soldiers um, of the division provided an alternative generator that allowed the hospital to continue functioning, while all the vital systems of the hospital continued to operate on an uninterrupted power supply. In addition, officers from the Coordination and Liaison um, Administration for Gaza coordinated the entry of professional officials to examine the electricity problem that they were having in the hospital. And the hospital received a supply of hundreds of food portions, including water, food, medical equipment, and baby formula. And this coordination was carried out with the international community to bring in a fuel tank to keep the hospital's generators functioning. Now, we never hear about that. And before they even exited the hospital, the area was cleaned and an additional food shipment was delivered to the hospital by the soldiers. Now, that is something that we never, ever hear. Now, Harris, please tell me about the settler violence that people are talking about. Okay, first of all, just a word or two about the word settlers. Uh, right. As far as, the, as, far as the, um, the Arab world is concerned, and in a large part of the media, everybody who's living in Israel, certainly all the Jewish people living in Israel, are regarded as settlers. It's part of the, it's, 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 it's a word that's been given a, a negative connotation, and it's something that, that is, that's designed to present us as being colonialists. Right. And we're not colonialists. And then and so all the talk about colonialism and, and the use of all the other buzzwords, they're totally out of place. The, um, what, I, the, all, the, all the noise that's been made about um, settlers uh, behaving uh, improperly and violently against uh, local, uh, local Arabs, I think is, is there, a lot of it, some of it is, is exaggerated. Right. Uh, I'm not saying it doesn't happen at all. And when it does happen, people are arrested and they are and they are they are tried, and they have limitations placed on them and all sorts of things. The Americans and the and the British came along and um, they launched a whole investigation into into this thing. At the end of the investigation, they they took they found four people, 
And uh, those four people have, have been out without trial or anything, but they are not allowed, they've been banned entry to, to both to the UK and to the United States. Four people, that's the, that's mm -hmm. the extent of the, of the noise. Um, so it's... We'll get back to that shortly. This is Finding Human with Sue Jackson, only on 101.9 High FM. Hello, this is Sue Jackson on the Finding Human program on 101.9 High FM Radio. You can SMS us 34519 or you can telegram us on 061-895-1019. My guest today is Harris Fee Green and our topic is We Will Prevail, We Have No Choice. We were talking about settlers and the story about the settlers and um, Harris was just explaining how this is really uh, a label given in Israel. But, you know, on the, uh, in 2014, you wrote a, a blog, Two Wrongs Don't Make a Right. And, uh, and you actually said then that the murder of Muhammad Abba Kadir by a group of young Jewish terrorists is a despicable act, and it is in no way consistent with Jewish uh, tradition or values. And you said, I wish to place on record the shame that this disgusting act has cast on me, on my people, and on my country. And that was in 2014, and you said you're confident that the perpetrators will be brought to justice and that they will spend the rest of their lives behind bars where they belong. Do you still feel that strongly after the massacre, the Hamas massacre in October? Do you still feel that strongly about people? Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, that's when... when um when I, when I, whenever I, I, I go back to some of the articles that I've written a while back, some of the blogs I've written a while back, uh, very often things that happen today make me recall events that happened before, and um, it, it, it that's just one of the one of the uh, uh, incidents that I recalled at the time. I remembered how how shocked I was at the time. First of all, because. The, that uh, that Arab child was killed following the kidnapping of three Jewish children yeah, who were subsequently murdered. Yep. And and all the outrage that went on. And of course, in the in the Palestinian world, the uh, the, the people who abducted them were regarded as heroes. Mm -hmm. And city squares and all sorts of things are named after those people. Um, so it, uh, I, I certainly I'm you know I, I still believe that two wrongs certainly don't make a right. That's what I was taught. And I think that that's, that's part of, of Jewish tradition. And it's a beautiful tradition and it's a beautiful value that's deep in our souls. It really is. And I, I actually think that that was one of the, the, the things that horrified all of us, most of all after when the Twin Towers came down, they were celebrating here in all various areas. Sweets were handed out. And we, we saw that again after the 7th of October a massacre. The celebration in the streets in, in Gaza was absolutely appalling. And even as our, our innocent people were being taken through the streets, some of them dead, some of them being dragged along the roads, there was still celebration. They were desecrating our, the bodies of our loved ones there. 
And I think so for you to say two wrongs don't make a right, thank goodness we're brought up very differently. But at the same time, it's often very difficult to not want to see justice done. That's that's true. Justice, justice is justice. Yeah. And uh, and uh, and uh, and I think that what's revenge is something else. And I, I don't think they'd be looking for revenge. I think that what we want is justice. Absolutely. And your your this week's blog, you actually said it was a uh, February the twenty third blog. You said, my dearest friends, Martin Luther King said, the ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in moments of comfort and convenience, but where he stands at times of challenge and controversy. And that you, you go on to say the inflammatory anti-Semitic rhetoric in the context of the Israel-Hamas conflict is becoming increasingly dangerous. Would you like to tell me why you wrote that? I read your article, but just so that everyone listening in can know why you wrote that. Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, today politicians, as soon as they're elected, their number one priority is to get elected, to get reelected the next time around. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that uh, what they do is they deliberately shun away from any uh, areas of unnecessary controversy and, uh, and anything that may challenge their, their ability to, to show true leadership qualities. Mm-hmm. I think they, seek, they, want to, they want to remain in their comfort zones. They want to do what they can to keep, to keep out of trouble. And they want to, they, they're not prepared to take sides. And I think that that's what's happened a lot in South Africa, not only in South Africa, all around the world. I think with the kind of demonstrations that we've seen in the streets across Europe, even in in Australia, outside the Sydney uh, Opera House, with the guests, the guests, the, the Jews uh, demonstration. I think all of those things only show us exactly the kind of hate that's out there. Right. And very often, what I find disappointing is the fact that too many world leaders do not speak up. Mm. They're elected to lead us. Absolutely. And I'm being told to wrap up, but, you know, you went on in that article to say you're very proud of the South African chief rabbi, Rabbi Warren Goldstein, for standing up and speaking against uh, uh, what's happening at the moment, and especially in South Africa with the genocide case. I am being told to wrap up. Um, Harris and I would like to also dedicate this program to the IDF, to the hostages, and please God they'll be released and be home with their loved ones and be healthy. Um, uh, Leo Tolstoy said, if you feel pain, you're alive. If you feel other people's pain, you're a human being. And I would like to think that we are all human beings. Thank you so much, Harris, for being on my program. We've got a, a very a lovely a song called Butterfly by Shulam and A.B. Rotenberg. It will not come through on the podcast, but you can pick it up yourselves. I'll speak to you after the program. Thank you, Harris.